0: Annihilation. 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 One minute at a time. Perhaps I stabbed our savior in his sacred helpless side. Yet I called his name in blessing when, in after times, I die. Through the travail of the ages, midst the pomp and toil of war, have I fought and strove and perished countless times upon this star. I have sinned and I have suffered, played the hero in the name, fought for belly, shame, or country, and for each have found a grave. So as through a glass and darkly, the age-long strife I see, for I've fought in many guises, many names, but always me. So forever in the future shall I battle as of yore, dying to be born a fighter, but to die again once more. General George S. Patton, Jr., through a glass darkly. It is time to talk about Annihilation as more of a movie than an exercise in literary science fiction. This minute begins and ends with cliches with their own entries on TVtropes.com. Blood from the mouth and some veins in black. Additionally, this sequence, once they are in the ambulance, Second 25, being filmed in England but posing implicitly as the United States, has some examples of good location dressing and bad location oversights. And on a behind the scenes note for this podcast, pulls me into an annoying obsession because for a time I could not identify the singular filming location, but I get ahead of myself. This minute begins with Lena and Kane sitting across from each other at the dining room table. We are mostly behind Lena, looking at Kane, and the eerie music and the harsh lighting on his face that we started the film with this shot would already clue us in to something being wrong. Never mind Kane's pause as he says, I recognize you. Face silence. The script says then Cain detaches his hand from Lina's. But second four, angle on their hands refracted through the water glass again, and it is Lena who moves her hand first, lifting it a little. Then he reaches for the glass of water. And this timing matters. I said in previous minutes that Cain moves his hand like he's still discovering how to use it. It is only now after Lena grabbed his hand that he's able to use his own hand grabs him second nine close on lena she watches kane concerned confused second 12 angle on kane as he takes a single sip according to the script really it is a good long mouthful then he puts the glass back down and maybe we notice the blood before we are shown it and before the close-up on the glass kane speaks vice versa in the script kane continues i don't feel very like well. well and mm-hmm. i am distracted by language and opposites um clearly i'm interrupting i feel badly let me what are you drinking bad bad sorry feel you feel bad bad Mm. Mm, badly is an adverb so to say you feel badly would be saying that the mechanism which allows you to feel is broken go sleep badly any questions hesitate to call bad excuse me sleep bad otherwise it makes it seem like the mechanism that allows you to sleep. What? Fuckhead? Badly's an adverb. Who taught you grammar? Get out. Vanish. Merriam-Webster tells us online, quote, There is a century-long tradition in English of telling people who say, I feel good, that they should respond instead with, well. One explanation for why it is wrong to say that one feels good is that good applies to morality and not to physical well-being. Another form of opposition to feeling good is that good is commonly used as an adjective, and so the verb feel should be followed by the adverb of well. This argument contains problems. One is that well may be an adjective, adverb, noun, verb, or interjection, and good may be both adverb or adjective and noun. Also, feel is a linking verb, which means that it may be modified with an adjective rather than an adverb. The adverbial use of good is fairly old in English, about a thousand years or so, but in the 19th century began to be seen as unduly colloquial or improper. There is still considerable evidence of such use in modern writing, particularly in coverage of sports but if you want to convince certain people that you write good you will use well rather than good when modifying action verbs such as write. so just as it's totally fine to say i feel bad it is also fine to say i feel good unless of course you are using feel as an action verb rather than a linking one with the meaning of to handle or touch in order to examine test or explore some qualities if this is the case, you should either rephrase your sentence or get yourself to a doctor, depending on how you feel. End quote. Second 19, close on Lena. She has noticed the blood already. She looks down toward it and even leans in a little closer. Second 22, reveal. In the water, a strand of blood hangs, suspended. It can only be inside Kane's mouth. And since we are dealing in this minute as movie and not something deeper, or trying to, It is worth noting that in the wider shot, as Kane set the glass down, the blood was on the right side of the glass, the side closest to the stairs. Now, on the close shot, the blood is on the right side, but since the camera angle has changed, it should be on the closest side. Instead, the blood is now on the side of the glass, closest to Kane. According to TV Tropes, A character is either dying or badly injured when they start bleeding from the mouth. Coughing up blood, specifically, is a common cue that a character is sicker than they let on. They might surreptitiously cough up blood onto a handkerchief or a tissue and dispose of it quickly so no one can see but by a camera that lets the audience know the situation is more dire than said character is likely to admit. TV Tropes tells us, quote, In real life, coughing blood can indeed indicate life-threatening damage. One of the scientific names to the symptom is hemoptysis. It can result in organ and tissue damage from disease or trauma, punctures in the respiratory and gastrointestinal tracts, and massive trauma to the body as a whole. This is an especially big warning if the lungs have been punctured, as the victim can drown in their own blood if not treated. As a death trope, it's caused by any fatal injury and is less a symptom than a signal to the audience that this dude's a god. Much like the chest clutching and doubling over in days of old, blood from the mouth is a sign of death that won't horrify us with the specifics, keeping our focus on the story itself. However, not all real-life bloody mouths are immediately dangerous. Damage to the gums in a fistfight, biting your tongue, or a particularly copious nosebleed can just as easily replicate the appearance. When it's not a death trope, blood around the mouth simply indicates the character has just taken a worse beating than usual. Our hero gets smacked around some and ends up with a bloody lip. Not a big deal, unless there's staggering involved. They might even spit out the blood defiantly along with a tooth just to showcase their resolve. Was that hit fatal? If the character wipes the blood away and it does not return... It's cosmetic blood from the mouth. Expect to hear, My name is Inigo Montoya, any second now. End quote. One notable example comes from Blade Runner. Deckard, Harrison Ford, has just taken a beam from Leon, Brian James, and when he takes a drink, blood gets into him. But especially interesting to me now is that the scene ends with Rachel, Sean Young, who has recently learned she is a replicant, asking Deckard an interesting question. You know those files on me? The incept date, the longevity, those things. You saw them? They're classified. But you're a policeman. I didn't look at them. You know that voight test of yours? Did you ever take that test yourself? Could Kane pass the voigt test? Could Lena, for that matter? In the novel Annihilation, the biologist has more time with her husband when he returns than Lena does in the film. She describes their last day before the ambulance. Quote, There had been a storm that final full day alone with my husband after he returned from the 11th expedition. A day that had the clarity of dream, of something strange and familiar. Familiar routine, but strange calmness, even more than I had become accustomed to before he left. In those last weeks before the expedition, we had argued, violently. I had shoved him up against a wall, thrown things at him. Anything to break through the armor of resolve that I know now might have been thrust upon him by hypnotic suggestion. If you go, I had told him, you might not come back and you can't be sure I'll be waiting for you if you do. Which had made him laugh infuriatingly and say, Oh, have you been waiting for me all this time? Have I arrived yet? He was set in his course by then, and any obstruction was a source of rough humor for him. And that would have been entirely natural, hypnosis or not. It was entirely in keeping with his personality to become set on something and follow, regardless of the consequences. He let an impulse become a compulsion, especially if he thought it was contributing to a cause greater than himself. It was one reason he had stayed in the Navy for a second tour. Our relationship had been thready for a while. In part because he was gregarious and I preferred solitude. This had once been a source of strength in our relationship, but no longer. Not only had I found him handsome, but I admired his confident, outgoing nature. His need to be around people. I recognized this as a healthy counterbalance to my personality. He had a good sense of humor, too, and when we first met at a crowded local park, he sucked past my reticence by pretending we were both detectives working a case and were there to watch a suspect. Which led to making up facts about the lives of the busy hive of people buzzing around us, and then about each other. At first i must have seemed mysterious to him my guardedness my need to be alone even after he thought he'd gotten inside my defenses either i was a puzzle to be solved or he just thought that once he got to know me better he could still break through to some other place some core where another person lived inside of me during one of our fights he admitted it much I tried to make his volunteering for the expedition a sign of how much i had pushed him away before taking it back later ashamed i told him point blank so there would be no mistake this person he wanted to know better did not exist I was who I seemed to be from the outside. That would never change. Early in our relationship, I had told my husband about the swimming pool as we lay in bed, something we doing a lot back then. He had been captivated, possibly even thinking there were more interesting revelations to come. He had pushed aside the parts that spoke of an isolated childhood to focus entirely on the pool itself. I would have sailed boats on it, captain by old flopper, no doubt, I replied, and everything would have been happy and wonderful. No, because I would have found you surly and woeful and grim, fairly grim. I would have found you frivolous and wished really hard for the turtles to scuttle your boat. If they did, I would just have rebuilt it even better and told everyone about the grim kid who talked to frogs. I had never talked to the frogs. I despised anthropomorphizing animals. So what has changed if we wouldn't have liked each other as kids? I asked. Oh, I would have liked you despite that, he said, grinning. You would have fascinated me, and I would have followed you anywhere, without hesitation. So we fit back then in our odd way. We clicked by being opposites, and took pride in the idea that this made us strong. We reveled in this construct so much for so long that it was a wave that did not break until after we were married, and then it destroyed us over time, in depressingly familiar ways. But none of this, the good or the bad, mattered when we returned from the expedition. I asked no questions, did not bring up any of our past arguments. I knew when I woke up beside him that morning after his return, that our time together was already running out. I made him breakfast... While outside, the rain beat down, lightning cracking nearby. We sat at the kitchen table, which had a view through the sliding glass doors of the backyard, and had an excruciatingly polite conversation over eggs and bacon. He admired the gray shape of the new bird feeder I had put in, and the water feature that now rippled with raindrops. I asked him if he had gotten enough sleep and how he felt. I even asked again questions from the night before, like whether the journey back had been tough. No, he said, effortless flashing an imitation of his old, infuriating smile. How long did it take, I asked. No time at all. I couldn't read his expression, but in its blankness I sensed something mournful. Something left inside that wanted to communicate but couldn't. My husband had never been mournful or melancholy as long as I had known him, and this frightened me a little. He asked me how my research was going, and I told him about some of the new developments. At the time I worked for a company devoted to the creation of natural products that broke down plastics and other non-biodegradable substances. It was boring. Before that, I had been out in the field taking advantage of various research grants. Before that, I had been a radical environmentalist participating in protests and employed by a non-profit to call potential donors on the phone. And your work? I asked, tentative, not sure how much more circling I could do ready at a moment's notice to dart away from the mystery. Oh, you know, he said, as if he'd only been away a few weeks. As if I were a colleague, not his lover, his wife. Oh, you know, the same as always. Nothing really new. He drank deeply from his orange juice, merely drank to savor it so that for a minute or two, nothing existed in the house but his enjoyment. Then he casually asked about other improvements around the house. After breakfast, we sat out on the porch, watching the sheets of rain, the puddles collecting in the herb garden. We read for a while, then went back inside and made love. It was a kind of repetitive trance-like fucking, comfortable, only because the weather cocooned us. If I had been pretending up until that point, I couldn't fool myself any longer that my husband was entirely present. Then it was lunch, and then television. I found a rerun of a two-man sailing race for him, and more than all talk. He asked about some of his friends, but I had no answers. I never saw them. They'd never really been my friends. I didn't cultivate friends. I had just inherited them from my husband. We tried to play a board game and laughed at some of the sillier questions. Then weird gaps in his knowledge became apparent and we stopped. A kind of silence settling over us. He read the paper and caught up on his favorite magazines, watched the news, perhaps he only pretended to do those things. When the rain stopped, I woke from a brief nap on the couch to find him gone from beside me. I tried not to panic when I checked every room, and couldn't find him anywhere. I went outside and eventually found him around the side of the house. He was standing in front of the boat he had bought a few years back, which he could never fit in the garage. He was just a cruiser, about 20 feet long, but he loved it. As I came and curled my arm around his, he had a puzzled, almost forlorn look on his face, as if he could remember that the boat was important to him, but not why. He didn't acknowledge my presence. kept staring at the boat with a growing blank intensity. I could feel him trying to recall something important, I just didn't realize until much later that it had to do with me. That he could have told me something vital then and there if he could only have recalled what. So we just stood there. And although I could feel the heat and weight of him beside me, the steady sound of his breathing, We were living apart. After a while, I couldn't take it. The sheer directionless anonymity of his distress, his silence, I let him back inside. He didn't stop me. He didn't protest. He didn't try to look back over his shoulder at the boat. I think that's when I made my decision. If he had only looked back, if he had just resisted me, even for a moment, it might have been different. At dinner, as he was finishing, they came for him in four or five unmarked cars and a surveillance van. They did not come in rough or shouting with handcuffs and weapons on display. Instead they approached him with respect, one might almost say fear, the kind of watchful gentleness you might display if about to handle an unexploded bomb. He went without protest, and I let them take this stranger from my house. I couldn't have stopped them, but I also didn't want to. The last few hours I had coexisted with him in a kind of rising panic, more and more convinced that whatever had happened to him in Area X had turned him into a shell, an automaton going through the motions. Someone I had never known. With every atypical act or word, he was driving me further from the memory of the person I had known. And despite everything that had happened, preserving the idea of him was important. That is why I called the special number he had left me for emergencies. I didn't know what to do with it. Couldn't coexist with them any longer in this altered state. Seeing him leave, I felt mostly a sense of relief, to be honest. Not guilt and betrayal. What else could I have done? End quote. Second 25, cut to. The script jumps into the ambulance, but on screen we get an establishing exterior shot first. It doesn't take much of a Google search to learn that the ambulance is a Type 3 ambulance, which is not distinctly British because vehicles are generally fairly easy to get for film productions. But it is running blue lights only, which suggests UK more than US. I get distracted by the blue symbol on the side of the ambulance, the Star of Life, not immediately realizing that this symbol is on ambulances all over the world. Designed by Leo R. Schwartz, EMS Branch Chief of the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration in 1973, though it is really just a slightly simplified version of the medical identification symbol of the American Medical Association in use since 1963, the symbol consists of a staff of Aesculapius centered on three cross blue bars like an asterisk. A quick explanation, because I love quick explanations, obviously. Aesculapius is the Roman god of medicine. Unlike the Caduceus, a similar symbol used by physicians, the staff of Esculapius has only one serpent and no wings. The Caduceus may be more exciting in that regard, but represents the wand of Hermes, a messenger god, and it represents peace rather than medicine. A quick story, because I love quick stories, obviously. One time, Aesculapius was having trouble with a particular patient, and he consulted with a snake for advice. The snake wrapped itself around his staff so they could speak eye to eye. Back to the Star of Life. Its three lines give it six external points. They represent detection, reporting, response, on-scene care, care in transit, and transfer to definitive care. The ambulance heads down an almost empty two-lane highway toward an overpass. The style of angled white lines dividing the highway and marking off the shoulder, and the orange glow of the streetlights, really, mark the location as definitively somewhere in England, which I presumed was near the various other filming locations in and around London. It is night, so not much beyond the road itself and the streetlights is visible. The camera flies behind the ambulance under the overpass, and we can see the streetlights ahead run down the center of the highway, which is yet another way this is definitely not an American road. Numerous perusals of Google Earth in and around the cities near the known filming location show that most roads of this size in the area are lined on either side by trees, which makes the visuals next minute, as the ambulance is stopped, a little unusual. A blurry skyline of some distant city did not help. But Google is the obsessive's friend. Insert. Many searches over many days. Eventually I learned, for example, about the location manager, Alex Gladstone, and how, according to Charles Thorpe at Men's Journal, no date, quote, Gladstone received a call from the director, Alex Garland, whose new script, Annihilation, called for a town ravaged by a mysterious ecological disaster to be explored by an enterprising biologist played by Natalie Portman. Gladstone smiled knowing immediately where to shoot the old Air Force Base. I always knew it would be an amazing place to shoot, he says. Garland apparently agreed. Nearly all of the outdoor scenes in Annihilation, currently in theaters, adapted from Jeff Vandermeer's best-selling science fiction novel, were shot at Marsworth. Its crumbling buildings contributing the exact kind of eerie desolation that the director had envisioned, end quote. And I learned that the vehicles were acquired from real vehicles, a production company out of Dunsville, UK. And just when I was about to stop looking for the location, I found an old Instagram post by a user called Kinky Weasel, real name Steve K., who happened to get photos of the ambulance and some crew at the time of the shooting. The time of the shooting, by the way, and how I got to Kinky Weasel's photos, I got that information from natalieportman.com, text from a no longer existing article, on the gethampshire.co.uk, for locals in Aldershot, UK, May 2016, quote. Residents and businesses living near Allison's Road have received a letter from the supervising location manager for the movie, Alice Gladstone, telling them of plans for filming between Friday, May 27, at 6 p.m. and 5 a.m. Saturday morning. The letter says, Allison's Road, Aldershot, has been identified as a great visual and logistical potential in being used to represent a Baltimore street in the film. In the scene near the beginning of the film, an ambulance is seen to be stopped on its journey by a group of mysterious vehicles, including a helicopter. End quote. We will return to the implication that this is Baltimore in Minute 17, when Ventures talks about where this film might be taking place. And so, I return to Google Earth. Sure enough, the empty road beyond the overpass is Allison's Road. Before the overpass is Clubhouse Road. The overpass is A325. The ambulance is headed east-southeast. Unfortunately, the likely location based on the area map for next minute is Allison's Road heading past the Military Preparation College, left of the road, hence the side angles coming primarily from the left, is a section of road that does not have a street view. So, matching the blurry buildings in the background or that blurry skyline after the ambulance is stopped is impossible for me. This is good enough for the obsessive in me, though, and that this location is Aldershot Camp, a military-connected location, makes sense given the film's use of Marsworth Air Force Base later. Second 28, interior. Ambulance, night. The interior of an ambulance driving fast through the night street, siren howling, the script says, but we do not hear the siren. This does seem to be a quote-unquote real ambulance interior. We can see a brand logo on at least one of the seats for EVS. Emergency Vehicle Seating, a company that has been dealing specifically in seating for emergency vehicles since 1993. Lena sits on the right, next to Kate. Lena, stay with me, baby. Kate. Strapped to a stretcher in the back, roll back, eyes, head half raised, vomits blood. Kane starts to seize. Lena. Right here with you. Second 31, angle on paramedic. An IV bag hangs blurry in the foreground. And honestly, it is not immediately clear where this paramedic sits relative to Lena or Kane. Given the play of bright lights through the window beyond Kane's head in a few seconds, it feels like we are facing the rear of the ambulance. But cinematic rules of editing suggest otherwise. Despite the brightness of the lights, we are looking forward. Lena on the right side of the vehicle, the paramedic on the left. And Garland was simply playing with the light, unrealistically, as he will many times in this film. Only now do we hear any siren. Or I hope it is an alarm, because that is not an American siren. But neither is it the usual British one. Paramedic. Male, 31, hemorrhage, any seizure. The line continues in the script. Wife reports confused state, possible concussion, but no sign of head wound. Second thirty-four. Angle on Kane, blood all over his chin. Lena touches his head from the edge of frame. Lena, stay with me, baby. I love you. The angle changes slightly, favoring Lena over Kane. He looks at her. Lena, continued, baby, look at me. He seizes violently, head rising and then slamming back down. Bright light shines behind him out the front window. Lena now out of frame again. Lena, continued to paramedic. Can't you do something? From the script. Paramedic, prepare emergency team for ETA and six mics. Suddenly, the paramedic is interrupted by a second siren joining the first, then a third and fourth. Blue lights start pulsing through the windows. Above the sirens, the paramedic shouts to the ambulance driver. Paramedic continued, did you call for police escort? Ambulance driver, they aren't police. Paramedic, what the hell? The paramedic looks out of the window. As he does so, the interior of the ambulance is flooded with blinding white light and a roar of engine noise. Please skip some of that but also play up what is going on outside. The interior of the ambulance is flooded with blinding white light, as Lena says those last few lines of hers. As I said before, the light before felt too bright to be ahead of the ambulance, but now we are looking rearward, so it is more appropriate. Second 40, the script says, from Lena's bleached face disoriented by the horror and sensory overload, cut to exterior street continues. Those center-island orange-hued streetlights tell us we're not in the United States, but a strangely placed American speed limit sign on one of those center-island poles demonstrates that the location dress was done by someone who looked up and acquired an American sign, but neglected to look up where such a sign should be. It would not be on a center pole, but a pole at the side of the highway, and since we cut to the arrival of one of the black SUVs from an on-ramp, that speed limit sign would also be about 10 yards or so, that's 9.144 meters, farther ahead, so the joining traffic would see it. On the opposite side of that same pole, and placed in a matching location on the right shoulder, both facing away from us, are triangular signs probably warning of a roundabout, since everyday traffic on the stretcher would be headed the opposite direction. The more interesting sign placement is actually off to the far left, on the other side of the highway. A large rectangular sign listing distances to upcoming locations, perhaps, but facing away from us, and facing away from the usual flow of traffic on that side of the highway. If this sign was already at the location, its placement is strange, but if this was put there by the production to further suggest the American flow of traffic, it is actually quite brilliant. This sign covers for a sign that usually faces the other direction, I learn on Google Earth, a white sign identifying this stretch of Allison's Road as a Ministry of Defense Road. From the Script The street outside the ambulance where the reason for the noise and light is explained The ambulance is flanked by three black SUVs, and above it, a helicopter, no more than four meters off the ground, shining a spotlight straight down at the front windscreen. The film remains at a distance, so this initial approach is actually more subtle. One black SUV comes onto the highway from the right, then another, and a black helicopter comes into frame at the top left as well. It may have a spotlight running, but it is not immediately obvious. Second 43, cut to, interior ambulance, continuous. Our angle reversed, Lena to the left now, as we look toward the rear of the ambulance and the bright lights outside. Now we get the lights early. Paramedic, did you call for a police escort? The script takes us to ambulance driver, Jesus Christ. Dazzle slamming his foot on the brakes. Exterior street continuous, sending the vehicle into a skid. Interior ambulance continuous, which slams Lena and a paramedic hard against the wall of the vehicle. The semi-conscious cane is held fast by the stretcher straps. Exterior street continuous, the ambulance gets to a stop. The SUVs expertly slide to halt around it. Instead, second 45, we are outside the ambulance again, watching from its left. At least two SUVs follow closely, they have their own sirens slash lights. The lights are, again, all too blue to be American. We hear the helicopter, but do not see it. The surroundings are black, but for what look to be a few storefronts in the distance. The third SUV comes into frame in the closing lane and moves alongside the ambulance. In a remarkably well-timed edit, second 50, that SUV goes through a puddle and water splashes upward. And the angle changes to the front, water still splashing as the ambulance swerves away from that SUV. Second 51, we are inside the ambulance again as those inside react to the swerve. And Lena and the paramedic are finally framed in the same shot. Lena looks out the back window, her arm draped over Kane, and then we are outside again. The side angle. Second 54, the forward SUV moves toward the ambulance. The ambulance squirts again, and we are inside in time for the ambulance driver to say, Easy, easy. Second 56, we are in front of the vehicles again. Second 56, we are in front of the vehicles again as the forward SUV cuts ahead of, and then pulls in front of, the ambulance. And while these are our van and black unidentified operatives, time runs out for this minute. So I will leave the TV Tropes explanation and the conspiracy theory connections for next minute. Hanging on his cross, alone and forgotten, without a single bird to frighten away. Body stuffed with dreams where his soul should be, yet he was loved most of all once upon a time. Robert E. G. Black, Scarecrow. We spoke. What was it we said? Wordlessly watching, he wakes by the window and wanders at the empty place inside.